the glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory's lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days, the gory days. The show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, Chucky the Doll, Leatherface, Jason Voorhees, uh, Pumpkinhead, uh, Toulon from Puppet Master. What do all of these iconic horror monsters have in common besides being well icons they're franchises they all have like six to eight movies in each of their uh franchises and some of them are still going if you can believe it and that's what the 80s kind of ushered in with their slashers we had sequels and stuff in 60s horror and 70s horror but it really wasn't until the 1980s that franchises became huge but i digress Today I'm talking about the movie Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. This movie is a love letter to all of those 80s slashers that I mentioned because in this movie, they're all real. Yeah, in the universe of Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, Chucky the Doll, Jason Voorhees, probably, well, those four are historical events those all happened all of those people and given some dialogue later in the movie i think it's safe to assume that all of their subsequent films also happened i'm i'm going to be hitting on that uh later for sure about how the heck all of these people are supposed to exist but anyway behind the mask with les behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon is directed and produced by scott glosserman who Yeah, I don't know. This guy has barely any footprint. He's got one of the shortest Wikipedia entries I've ever seen where it just says, an American film director. This was like his second movie, and he's fallen off the face of the earth. But Scott Glosserman, there you go. He also wrote it with his friend David J. Steve. Now, this movie stars a bunch of lesser-known names. Uh, I feel kind of disrespectful by not reading all of them. So there. With a couple of cameos, I'll mention uh, that pop up. But but if you haven't seen the movie, let's see. It's a mockumentary, meaning that the movie is set like it's a documentary set in the quote-unquote real world, and it's going to use documentary style, like um, interviews and inserts and maybe even dramatization, dramatizations. But the documentary itself, the movie within the movie, follows this guy, Leslie. Leslie, he he says he's Leslie Verdon, but we learn later that his name is Leslie Mancuso, who wants to be a serial killer. He aspires to be a serial killer. And so that's the movie. The documentary itself is apparently just a slice-of-life piece about this eccentric guy who's planning some big event with uh, some nefarious undertones behind it. It's like more of a personal fluff piece than anything else. It's implied that these are just like indie filmmakers, but there's something just so painfully like student about what they're doing. And I feel like if if maybe this had been positioned as, oh, they, this was a student documentary that they were doing on like this slice of life person, I don't know. 
And the director, the main, so so the uh, crew making this documentary is a woman named Taylor Gentry and her team Doug and Todd, who are supposed to be funny. <laughs> they're they're like the worst camera crew ever. They're talking constantly. They're like pointing at their shoes. They're not pointing the lens directly at the action. It's it's. It's not funny. It's just annoying. Um, and once again, if they were students, I feel like that would be a little. That would make a little more sense. But are they just her friends or something? Do they literally have no camera etiquette or experience with recording this stuff? They can frame things okay. So I know it's a movie. I'm looking uh, too far into it already. So that's our team. Taylor Gentry is a, a woman played by Angela Gethels, and Taylor is a young white woman who I can only assume sent out a, let's say, Craigslist ad blindly saying, hey, I'm an indie filmmaker and I'm looking for spooky individuals with big events planned that uh, they don't necessarily want uh, on the news. I, that's the other part that I don't understand is she's a documentarian and this guy's a, a wannabe serial killer. Where... <laughs> Why is this being made? It's so confusing that there's any kind of doubt in Taylor's mind of like, oh, I don't know if we should be doing this. Like, this is a world where Michael, Freddie, and Jason all exist and have, like, uh, excelled to some kind of, like, legend status. It's really bizarre. I feel like I have to start there because it's the first thing they drop on us. They, they, They even, like, went on location, it looks like. To the three movies we see Haddon, uh, what is it, Haddonfield from Halloween. We see that street and Jamie Lee Curtis's house uh, from that movie. We see Springwood and Elm Street from A Nightmare on Elm Street and Nancy's house, complete with a cameo from Kane Hodder, who played Jason in Freddy vs. Jason, sneaking back into the house there, which I thought was cool because he stands out like a sore thumb. Dude does not look like an actor. He looks like a stuntman for sure. And we see, like, uh, at least... Camp Crystal Lake's a hard one because I feel like any wooded area with a lake in the background, all you have to do is slap a Camp Crystal Lake sign on it, and uh, there you go. But she's there on location at these crime scenes with these where these uh, at-large veritable monsters were, were killing people. And then there's this 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 guy that that wants to be one of them, wants to be a serial killer. So so that's the movie in a nutshell. Is a documentarian is filming a guy who wants to be a serial killer and is planning a big event. And what is the big event? He's planning to uh, basically play out all of the the tropes of '80s slasher movies in quote unquote real life, like down to the wire. And that includes stalking them, finding his prey, matching up people and making sure that like the crowd is a good match of all the different uh, cliques at high school and stuff. The movie bills itself as uh, a comedy horror, and I feel like a lot of the dark comedy elements are front-loaded in the first and second acts because the humor comes from basically the movie deconstructing the 80s slasher serial killer by showing what it would take uh, to like practically under real world circumstances execute these extensive psychological and physical torture that's so commonplace in 80s slasher movies. So things like being able to uh, 
look like you're walking, but suddenly appear somewhere else very quickly, he, it would obviously take a lot of cardio. So it's pulling the, the, the veil back on a lot of the silly things that we find so scary once we suspend disbelief in these horror movies. Like, you know, the idea of Michael at the end of Halloween falling off of a, a two-story building and falling to the ground everyone looking and seeing yep he's definitely there taking their eyes off of him and then looking back and he's gone like no footprints no sound no nothing like that kind of supernatural stuff but that's it michael freddie jason they're all supernatural they all have like magical uh you know evil whatever powers that allow them to do the ridiculous things that they do like walk on the bottom of the ocean or uh, attack you in your fucking dreams or, yeah, teleport from, like, down the street. Michael Myers, uh, that's the hardest one because I feel like that's the most grounded one to to justify. Like, for the sake of, of understanding, like, the world that that this place is creating, this is a world where there's a literal wraith Walking around out there, Jason cannot be killed, no matter what, stops at nothing to kill you, and then uh, when he's done, I guess he'll just kill for fun. A fucking ghost, Freddy Krueger, to be fair, the uh, opening like throwaway line about Freddy, uh, Taylor, the documentarian, sounds kind of like dubious of a monster attacking you in your dreams, but we know, we know he's real, um... Voodoo magic, Leslie Leslie definitely says Chucky exists or like uh, drops once again like a throwaway line, which is just is so frustrating. Like all of these monsters exist. Like I said, Michael Myers is probably the easiest one to explain, and in my opinion, would have been enough if this was just a movie that takes place in the same universe as Halloween. That would have been fine when you or even like him and. Uh, Sleepaway camp, and gosh, you could even throw in like um, chopping mall, but I get it. You wanted to use some of the more famous Leatherface, Leatherface would have been good, but I feel like he's cheating because he's like a direct Ed Gain reference. So it would be like art imitating life, imitating art, uh, which is always entertaining. So yeah, circling back to some of the dark comedy bits, the like it, it plays on the absurdity of somebody taking being a serial killer with supernatural abilities seriously um and like seriously enough to establish a long-standing fake backstory use cgi to create a fake great uncle for his victim to discover in a newspaper article that he also fabricated and replaced the microfiche with which he correctly predicts his victim will read. That's some of the like bigger comedy bits, is he's accurately able to predict what the people in this movie will do because he's living in a horror movie. So all of the presuppositions, like no one jumps out of first-story windows, um, people are, uh, they never check uh, to see if they like have their keys before running out or uh, just... He's able to predict what people do because he's in a horror movie. But that CGI one is particularly funny. One, because he's 
there's a bunch of lines in this movie that are like thinly veiled references to real world horror movies. And so his throwaway of like, oh, yeah, we all use CGI to make the fake great uncle in the uh, newspaper clipping. It's so convoluted and it's so funny because they do. I guess it's. The problem is, is I didn't find it that funny in the moment. The movie does too good a job of establishing like what this guy's capable of and what he's trying to put together too early. Because when he makes the fake article and replaces the microfiche and gets the girl that he's stalking into the library to find the article to request the microfiche, I'm never like, oh, yeah, that's that's really funny and absurd until after the movie's over and I think about it. And I'm like, oh, my God, yeah, that was ridiculously extensive uh and then in that library scene we get a wonderful cameo by zelda rubenstein as mrs collinwood zelda rubenstein of course from poltergeist this apparently was the last film that she worked on uh what else does he do um uh oh rigging a whole house like fucking home alone and sabotaging the would-be weapons and tools and like branches and stuff and studying theater techniques and sleight of hand magic to understand and orchestrate like accurate horror for his victims it's all ludicrous the amount of preparation and study that he has to put into what is effectively a massive horrendous crime and i guess that's kind of the underlying dark humor of this movie i'll just say it now the movie doesn't hold up because we're essentially following a straight white male, I'm going to say it, incel, who is planning with terrifying detail, terrorism. He's planning on entrapping these children, children, high school students. He's a full-grown adult, and he's stalking children, high school students. Honestly, that first scene where they're at the high school and they're watching the kids uh, like uh, hanging out, that was enough for me to go, like, this guy is fucked this isn't funny it wasn't funny at that point anymore because it's like this is a movie where we're watching this guy uh he's he's basically a straight white male incel who's trying to put together a way to uh torture and murder a bunch of children and that's not funny i don't know what we were doing in 2006 2007 where where things were just a little looser but here in 2020 i feel like we've evolved past this and it comes off as just tasteless and and weird and for taylor to even like entertain the idea of not turning him in is just bonkers and i feel like it the movie wants me to believe that because this is a world where freddie and jason and michael exist then maybe serial being a serial killer and aspiring to be that isn't that taboo and it's so fucking confusing because taylor is obviously like shouldn't we do something i don't know about this the whole time as it's becoming clear and after he admits that he's going to murder these people and after he's involved her to a point that th- she is 100 <laughs> percent helping him if not enabling like wh- when when sh- when she helps with the like brick pulling to scare the girl she knows at that point what's happening here. We are torturing, we are psychologically torturing this poor girl, and she's just, like, happy with it because she got a good shot for her documentary. What is this freaking movie that she's trying to make? I don't understand what the documentary is supposed to be about anyway. Her opening thing is about, like, oh, discovering uh, who the next Michael, Freddie, or Jason will be before it happens and documenting his rise, the rise of Leslie Vernon. Just that 
thesis is so problematic and frustrating. You are glorifying and you're saying, hey, any people out there who are mentally unstable enough to want to murder somebody, I will give you a platform and film you and give you the reassurance that you need by forcing a camera in your face and going, good, good, good take. So the movie's supposed to be about a delusional guy and his ludicrous support network going along with his neuroses? Is that what she thought she was getting into? Did she think she was going to be making a movie about a guy who, oh, yeah, he wants to be a serial killer, but really the documentary is going to be about his support network and how they, you know, enable him in some ways and uh, divert his attention to better outlets and other ways. That that would be a great documentary, frankly. I'm sure it already exists. Was it supposed to be about an actual serial killer and the crew enabling and encouraging them up until the deaths? If so, how do you release that movie? I don't understand. There's no statute of limitations on murder. So if if these people are just like bragging about this, and let's say that the murders go off without a hitch, and she releases this movie where it's, oh, hey, I'm going to be doing Q&A. Did, did those people really die? Yes. Yes, they really did die, and I helped, and I made sure that they died. Uh, yes, next question in the back. Hmm, what's that? I'm under arrest? Okay, thank you very much, everybody. That's the only thing that I could imagine would happen after... After the the events of this movie, even as they play out, no one should get to walk away from this without some kind of uh, uh, repercussions. the The only other assumption I'm I'm left with while I'm watching the movie is to assume like are are they all actors? Is everyone an actor? Who wh- what is this movie? It's hard for me to suspend my disbelief long enough to believe I am watching a intelligent, artistic documentarian treat this violent, misogynistic, racist pig man with any kind of respect or admiration. She seems to like have this weird like, oh, he's really into what he does. It's it's horrible, but man, that that determination. So anyway, the movie follows this documentary crew following Leslie Vernon. We learn that Leslie Vernon is actually Leslie Mancuso, a violently disturbed man whom Dr. Halloran treated in Reno, Nevada. Dr. Halloran, played by none other than Robert Englund, who once again rips me out of this movie. Any person who likes 80s horror movies enough to watch this movie knowing what they're going into is overtly familiar with Robert Englund, both in name and appearance. So for him to show up in your movie as a supporting character that has a direct effect on the plot is so goddamn frustrating. Fuck me for wanting to be immersed in this film with with its homages and the fucking like uh, girls in the background in their white dresses doing... Uh, uh, jump rope it's obvious i get it you're referencing freddy i get it but yeah dr halloran he he's he's the ahab he's the ahab i have an ahab my god i want to punch everybody in that scene because even when uh, taylor's like what's an ahab leslie's like it's an a i have an ahab and that's a really big thing 
God, he has all of these rules and uh, words uh, and like jargon for all of everything that he does. And an Ahab is somebody that represents all the good uh, that is like the antithesis to your evil and who's going to stop at nothing to stop you. He's Dr. Loomis from Halloween. Uh, In just an obvious way, I feel it doesn't add much of anything except establishing for us some realism for who... Who the hell we're supposed to believe? I still don't. I still don't know if I should totally believe Doctor Halloran. This movie does such a bizarre job with its in-universe rules that I can't tell what's real and what's not, and that doesn't make it fun. I, going into this movie as a lover of '80s movies, am overtly familiar with Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers and Halloween. And you know what? I'm familiar with what they can do and how their existence would affect the world. I was talking with my fiance about this. Like, if Freddy Krueger existed, if Candyman existed, if any of these places uh, monsters existed, the places that let's pick one. Let's just make it easy. Let's pick uh, Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street, Springwood. Um, Elm Street. Elm Street would be a slum, let alone people dying there every time somebody buys a house. All the houses would have multiple death records. They would never be able to sell. They would go to, like, you know, the, the undesirables of society, and it would become an absolute slum. And that's what would happen to uh, Haddonfield, if that's what it's called from Halloween, and that's what would happen to Camp Crystal Lake. I mean, that's... <laughs> That one, it, it does, actually. They close the place down, and uh, it becomes like a derelict mess. But but in my opinion, Dr. Halloran uh, rips me right out of the movie. So uh, the movie pivots in its third act in a pretty cool way from being a documentary-style movie to a regular horror movie where we're not getting POV from the cameras and we're not doing cutaway um, interviews and uh, dramatizations and stuff. Now we're just full-on multicam cutting uh, horror movie. Anyway, long story short, he's uh, he's supposed to be killing this virgin that he's been following, and then, uh-oh, it turns out she's not a virgin. Surprise, surprise. Turns out Taylor was the virgin that he always was trying to get to, and Taylor kills him. Unless you watch the ending credits, where apparently he's uh, still alive after getting his head crushed by an apple cider grinder thing, and then his body burned to a crisp such that the paramedics took his burned body, put it in a body bag and sent it to the morgue. But he's alive because, because he's so evil. Uh, There's this other character in there that's supposed to be his mentor. His name is Eugene and he's played by Scott Wilson, who I don't know where I recognize him from, but he seems very familiar and he's supposed to be He's supposed to be the mentor. He's the one that's got uh, Leslie, like, who's legitimizing a lot of Leslie's urges and stuff and is giving him direction and the jargon to work with. And we meet him, like, a couple of times, but he basically represents 60s and 70s horror. He basically says as much when he's like, it was a whole different world back when I was in the game. I had a good portion of my success in the late 60s and 70s. Back then, it was about quantity of work. How many jobs can you fit in a year? How many places can you hit? You know, we didn't have all the preparations these guys use today. (sighs) This dude is, like, professionally bragging about his killing spree that he apparently got away with. And I 
don't enjoy it. It is so freaking weird to hear him talking about like, oh, yeah, I mean, uh, he's, he's dancing around a little bit, but just the amount that he's dancing around it is just gross. It's uncomfortable where he's talking about like, yeah, I... Oh, there's always been hacks out there. Yeah, what else did he say? Jay, Fred, Mike. There weren't nobody like them in the early years. We just hit hard, wiped everybody out, and disappeared as fast as we could without ever giving a thought to coming back. I fucking hate how he refers to Jason, Freddie, and Michael Myers as Jay, Fred, Mike. Like, they're his drinking buddies. Like, he might run into them at the bar and pop a, a, a bring over um, a stool and have a beer with them. It's disgusting because it reminds me of how I feel like people talk about uh, who am I? Think? Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, uh, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ed Gain, um, BTK, like these these serial killers that have stood the test of time and gotten to a point where movies are made of them starring handsome men. Uh, And they excel into a legend status where even though they did these horrible, horrible things, we're never going to forget them and we're going to keep making pulp uh, content off of them. That's the way that they treat uh, Jason, Freddy, and Michael in this movie. But his familiarity with them is just so frustrating because he explains he's like... Uh, he he comes from late sixties and seventies, and he like looks at Jason, Freddie, and Michael with like some uh, jealousy or derision. But he's talking about them like they're friends. It's frustrating. He should hate them. They 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 ruined like what he did. He he was about killing as many people as possible and then getting out of there and not getting caught. Because in the 60s and 70s, I guess he's implying people weren't as concerned with, like, the, the, the pathos. Why is he a serial killer? Why is he doing this? You know, Psycho and some other movies uh, notwithstanding. So, yeah, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, it's pretty, it's fun. The, the main actor who plays Leslie, Nathan Basel, another guy who has apparently fallen off the face of the earth, he does a pretty good job of... I mean, portraying, I don't even know if that's what he was going for, but he does a great job of portraying a straight white male incel, uh, complete with all of his like weird hobbies and his gross little soul patch and his like nimbleness, how he's able to move around. He's surprisingly like strong and athletic, even though he's lanky and uh, just like the the way he talks about how he's excited there's that one moment where he's crying because of how happy he is because of what he's about to do that moment really got me i started to get anxious for him i started to get nervous when they're up in the bedroom and it's like okay we're almost ready and it feels like in the movie like there's still time to not do this but when you start you you can't stop and so in the next room the the guy and girl are having sex and then he goes out and you hear the sound effects of him chopping them to bits and he comes back in and it's so funny it's i guess that's i guess that's kind of the dark comedy too is that in that moment it feels very much like a theater production like he just went out on stage he did the thing and now he's come back backstage where he can kind of just like undress and talk about what he did a little bit and psych himself up for the next scene and uh there's there's something like really horrifyingly exhilarating about that about like he's put so much work months and months into what is essentially uh like a trap to to force these children to uh like go where he wants and do what he wants and even if they try something surprising he's thought of that and 
that like Machiavellian mousetrap of uh, predicting what people are going to do. There's something there's something really like nerve wracking and exhilarating about that. But the fact that he's killing children erases all of that because it's terrible. So that's the movie. That's Behind the Mask, uh, The Rise of Leslie Vernon in a nutshell. I've skipped, obviously, a lot of pieces. And if I wouldn't say if you like 80s horror, go see this movie because this does nothing for you. If anything, it frustrates you as a fan of 80s horror. The opening premise of the movie will frustrate you. Now, if you like indie horror with a, like, uh tongue-in-cheek, self-aware style closer to Scream that's still going to take itself seriously at the end when you want it to, then go see this movie. Anyway, I want to move on to um, the next segment, which is Screaming Themies. Ah! This is the segment where I talk about some of the themes that jumped out at me. Number one, obviously, being 80s slasher films. So as I mentioned... Eugene represents some of the 60s and 70s horror, and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek illusion slash, like, condemnation letter to the just onslaught of franchises that came out of Freddy, Jason, and uh, Michael. But in a way, he also represents the rules for Leslie, which is ironic because he comes out of the 50s, uh, the 60s and 70s, but a lot of his rules pertain to 80s horror tropes. I won't look too far into that. But in a way, Leslie latches so strongly to the rules of 1980s slasher movies, he's ultimately punished for it. He's defeated by, like, the new, new rules, like, like, the, like that virgins aren't always virgins and final girls aren't always final. It's the 2000s, baby. We don't, uh, we subvert our expectations. We punish our audience for thinking they know what's going to happen. We have twists and turns and surprises. Uh, and he's Leslie is frankly unprepared for that. He's prepared for this movie to go exactly as is, as is planned, for everyone to do basically what Scary Movie said everyone will do. It's so funny. <laughs> there are there's movies every few uh, every few years that come out and is like, oh, I get horror movies. Let's make a movie that just deconstructs horror movies. And there was a series of those scary movie pretty much started it with horror movies. And then the producers of that exploded into something they were not prepared for. Do you guys remember disaster movie and epic movie and all of that crap? God, that was just trying to deconstruct different genres, but they were not that they were literally just a, uh, robot chicken style cavalcade of, topical references from like that year they do not hold up <laughs> um, uh, and so yeah a movie like scary movie that that or even scary movie two or three that builds on the tropes of the 80s slasher is something that leslie was what he was expecting but that's not what happens in this movie the last way uh that the 80s slasher theme comes up that i found i kind of mentioned before is the uh the dark comedy played up by Leslie working out, uh, specifically that cardio scene. He wants to appear to be walking toward a victim and still appear someone else, i.e. by running. And it's played like as an in-joke because Michael, Freddie, and Jason do this supernaturally. So it's, it's funny to think that he could ever do what they do by just working out and eating right 
because because that's funny that oh we know we the audience know that freddie jason and michael are supernatural and he could never no person could ever do what they do but since they're real quote unquote in the world of behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon is it attainable by doing cardio or is one able to work out enough to do the things that these quote-unquote real people are capable of doing and if so then that's not a joke he's really doing it and he's really working and the joke would be in us thinking that it's impossible to do that from cardio and then the punchline would be oh shoot all of that silly like cardio and eating right actually gave him perceived supernatural abilities to like teleport across the lawn or uh not die from bullet shots after falling off of a two-story house yeah, so I just wanted to hit on that before I get to the next uh, theme really quick, which is the j- theme of journalistic responsibility slash integrity. Taylor, the documentarian, is visibly conflicted constantly throughout the movie with whether or not she should pull the plug on the whole movie, the whole project. But she doesn't because it's a movie and we need to see what's going to happen. But even, even after that scene that's done really well, honestly where Leslie aggressively, like, he doesn't strangle her, but he shoves her against the car, and he's holding onto her throat, and she's, like, struggling, and it's right in front of the cameraman, who does nothing but, you know, properly frame the shot. (laughs) Taylor still decides to continue the project, and it isn't until after two people are confirmed, two children are confirmed dead, that she finally decides, we can't let this happen. We have to do something. (sighs) And I put journalistic responsibility because that's that's just the, the phrase that I, we came up with for this theme. But she's not a fucking journalist. She's a student filmmaker. She's an indie filmmaker. If you drove yourself out to make a movie or whatever with two friends, guess what? There's no producer on the line. There's no studio waiting for your dailies. You can just cut it and leave. You can just cut the line and cut all ties and get out of there whenever you want like the idea that this movie's going to make uh, uh, make her so great or whatever. And then what happens with the movie? I was, I was curious to know what was happening with this documentary. <laughs> we don't get to see that. We just see that uh, Dr. Halloran and Todd and... Uh, who else? Someone else lives. Oh, Dr. Halloran. Wait, did I already say that? <laughs> Dr. Halloran, Taylor, and Ta- Todd all live. Uh, but we don't know what happens with the, the documentary itself. Oh, and of course... Leslie lives, Lindsay. Uh, Another theme, I guess the last theme that I noticed is the uh, good versus evil theme. It's funny, throughout throughout the movie, I was waiting for some pathological reason. Once again, the pathos. Why does he want to be a serial killer? Why? And I wasn't satisfied enough with, oh, he's just a deranged, you know, mental patient, mental asylum escapee or whatever from Reno. <laughs> and so it does kind of come, I can't remember if, it, if Eugene or Leslie say it first, but it comes in the form of they've chosen to be on the side of evil, to act on behalf of evil to balance out the good in the world. And so Leslie and Eugene see themselves as necessary counteractors who simply chose their calling in life. 
to be evil and commit horrible evil atrocities, maybe even to like bring out good in the world. And there's, you know, I'm taking that to, I'm inferring that to mean that if we didn't kill people, it's like if I didn't kill people, horrible things would happen. So it's really important that I kill people so that everything stays good in the world. (laughs) It's like that South Park joke of like, oh, we have to thin out their numbers so that they don't kill themselves. What do you mean? Now, let me put it this way. We have to kill them so they don't die. (laughs) So that explains Eugene's motives about being evil and acting out uh, evil for the sake of balancing out good or whatever. But Leslie... This is my opinion. Leslie really seems to just want to get his rocks off by shooting fish in a barrel and watching them squirm. That's all he wants to do. And I can't I can't say, based on the movie's events, that there is or isn't a sexual element to it, but he definitely plays up that fucking man uh, empowering her with a long, hard stick staff or whatever, but he has no intent. Uh, yeah, anyway. He rigged the whole house just to fuck with these children and kill them one by one, and while well, ultimately empowering the final girl, like I said. So, no, I don't buy that. I don't buy that Leslie has this higher calling and that he chose this to uh, be the actor for evil to counteract good and balance out the scales. No, he's a fucking disgusting, uh, straight white male incel pervert fuck who wants to put a bunch of teenagers in a house and fuck with them and then kill them so that he can get his jollies off and then go to the bank the next day. What a fucking asshole. I fucking hate Leslie Vernon. And uh, I'm glad that he gets his head crushed and himself burned. I hope he felt every every uh, fucking temperature there. <laughs> I hope he felt every temperature in that fire. So that concludes my screamy themies. I just thought... I think it's worth sharing that when I was watching this movie, something in me, when 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 they scare Kelly the first time, I think that's her name, right? Is that the girl's name? Kelly? Yeah, when they scare Kelly the first time at her job at the diner and we see like a figure in the background while they're jumping back into the van and one of them's like, hey, who's that guy? And Leslie's like, doesn't matter or who cares? Some shitty throwaway line that I didn't buy. It's like, well, I care. Who was that? I thought when that guy showed up that half of this movie was going to be about amateur indie documentarians following a wannabe serial killer while being stalked by an actual serial killer. I was watching this movie and hoping slash believing that at some point there was going to be a new character who is killing people that Leslie wasn't aware of, and it was going to become this, like, juxtaposition between Leslie, who's this wannabe punk who wants to kill people because it sounds fun, versus an actual, like, serial killer, psychopath with some real fucked up pasts that are real, not just made up based on some stuff from that you found on the internet. That's what I thought the movie was going to be, and that would have been a perfectly appropriate uh, condemnation slash love letter to the 80s, having people who, like, it would literally be like, oh, this movie is trying to deconstruct 80s horror movies? Fuck that. And uh, an 80s horror slasher within the movie would be effectively telling the movie, shut this shit down. Y'all are getting killed tonight. 
I, I wanted that. <laughs> and in another way, this movie just makes you want to watch Creep, that movie with uh, Mark Duplass where he like mimes having a baby in the bath for a 10-minute uninterrupted sequence. That movie, <laughs> uh, no pun intended, is creepy. And then even if there wasn't going to be um, a serial killer stalking the rest of them, I was expecting at least like a tonal shift. I don't know what, but I, I expected something in the middle to not shift our perspective in the way that it does in the third act, but to shift uh, like the tone from more comedic to more strictly horror. And I guess that kind of happened, but it was uh, more of a gradual slide in the movie. I was expecting just like a hard snap, kind of like... um. Uh, I can't think of any, like, I, I guess Insidious. Uh, I hate to use that movie as an example. It's got so many problems of its own. <laughs> and then the last thing I thought is, like, what if I was an indie documentarian? Let's pretend that I'm a white female documentarian, and I reached out for people looking to be the next, to be a next serial killer. And I reach out, and I'm like, haha, okay, you're a serial killer, lol. But then I would go there. What would I be expecting? What is Taylor expecting? She lucked out, frankly, when she emails and gets a serial killer, a wannabe serial killer who's like, yeah, I would love for you to film me. This guy could have been anything he could, and probably would have been if this wasn't a movie. But because this is a movie, of course, it's this svelte, semi-attractive, thin man who's like charismatic and more Ted Bundy than uh, BTK, certainly. But I don't know if I were a young white woman, what I would ex be expecting. I, I guess she would have had a death sentence. I think this was like her way of saying, yeah, I don't, I'm suicidal, but I don't want to kill myself. Instead, I'm going to try to make my death as sensational as possible by making a movie about it. That sounds fun. <laughs> which is way darker. God, if that were the thing, if Leslie was like, oh, I'm excited to, to have my story be told, and now he's in this like psychosexual entanglement with a woman who wants him to kill her, and he is so focused on playing his games and making his first kill so pure and whatever, it would become this like dichotomy of like, wait, this is what I wanted, isn't it? Doesn't that sound like a better movie too? And so finally that made me think, oh, that's interesting. There's also another version of this movie where uh, camera crew pretends to uh, set up documentary-like sessions with would-be terrorists, essentially to entrap them and have the cops show up. Like, that sounds like a pretty good uh, TV show. I'd watch that. Oh, we have our contact in southern Missouri, and he's got a warehouse full of guns, and he's excited to show us his big plan for New York City next month. We're going to go down there and check out what he's talking about. And bam, we got him. <laughs> that sounds like a good way to thin out some of the dumber numbers out there who are more desperate to get on a reality show than kill a million people. I am more than welcome. I, I, I more than welcome people to... What am I saying? <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. That's it. That's, the ri that's behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon. I want to rate this movie on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best. <sighs> it's not terrible, but I already gave the stuff two thumbs. This feels like another two-thumber where there, yeah, yeah, where there are some really bad ones that, that like 
the movie had me. There was no point where I wanted to stop and felt like, well, God, I got to finish watching this for my fucking podcast. I finished it. And even if it was under the auspice that it was going to do something different and be a better movie, I was there. I was along for the ride. And the pacing, it paces itself pretty well. So if nothing else, I'm going to give it that. Uh, the third act is kind of its own beast, and if it managed to stick the landing, <clears throat> I might have given it a two... Well, I don't give half thumbs, so I guess this was always going to be a two-thumber. I'm going to award my thumbs to Tio Gomez, the actor who played Stoned Guy, because I don't know if any of you out there... Uh, smoke weed but it really bothers me when i see people like this portrayed in movies where they are smoking weed and it's obvious that it's just weed but they're acting like they're on a mixture of heroin and meth like they i guess not meth but like uh acid where they are so couch locked and their uh reactions are so slow it's just ridiculous um and then I'm going to give the other thumb to, you know what? I'll give it to Zelda Rubenstein or Rubenstein because I love her. She's so cute in this movie. And the little monologue they give her is so fucking ridiculous and also frustrating because it's like, what the fuck? Is she an actor or does she just know this ridiculous story about, about this town? What in this movie is real? So, yeah, I'm going to give it to Zelda Rubenstein, wherever she is right now looking down at us. I hope she likes uh, the residuals from Poltergeist that her family is still collecting. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more of me every week, I have my other podcast called Feeling It Out with Kyle and Connor. You can listen to it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Send me an email at thegorydayspodcast at gmail.com. Watch me on Twitch. Uh, or you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the Gory Days, or just drop on by to thegorydays.com and see what's uh, new with the website. I updated that landing page. Let me know what you think. Until next time, stay scary out there. The Gory Days.